Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and, and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. According to the Hiaranga report of the government inquiry into mental health and addiction, while the prevalence of mental distress among Maori is almost 50% higher than among non-Maori, Maori are 30% more likely than other ethnic groups to have their mental illness undiagnosed. Dedicated to changing these staggering statistics is this week's podcast guest, Jean Tahuia, a mother, grandmother, wife, sister, and woman extremely proud of her Maori heritage. As one of nine children, Jean left school at the age of 16 with minimal education uh, in 1973 and went into nursing, boarding at a nursing home in Hastings with other nursing students. She was only one of five Maori nursing students in a class of 30, 30 kids. Over the years, Jean completed a Bachelor of Nursing and Midwifery training. She has been a midwife and registered nurse for over 30 years. After completing midwifery training, Jean became the founder of Choices, a Maori service provider in 1995. Choices services today include Kalpapa Maori birthing, preschool early childcare, sexual and reproductive health care, school-based nursing, health promotion and screening, counselling and prisoner reintegration and rehabilitation. They have over 80 staff and contract to the government and provide free nursing services to our Maori communities. Jean believes the real cause of Indigenous problems is colonisation and that as a result, Indigenous people of Aotearoa continue to suffer with higher statistics, proof in an over-representation in prisons, mental health institutes, dead and dying, homelessness and poverty. This, Jean believes, is a direct result of the failure of the New Zealand government to respond positively and appropriately to Indigenous needs. Join me this week as Jean and I discuss the impact of colonialisation and how it changed the way of life for Maori people in Aotearoa. Uh, Jean Tahuya from New Zealand. Kia ora. Jean, and welcome. Kia ora. Thank you. And it's a pleasure to be part of this service. I think it, it's a an area of interest for many. Yes, yes 100%. I'm looking forward to delving into the, the topic, especially as it relates to Indigenous and children, uh, mental health and well-being for our Indigenous populations around the world yes. and not just in New Zealand. But I'm keen to hear all about what you've been up to over your many years of experience. And if I just go back, Jean, do you just want to tell us a little bit about where you're from in Aotearoa specifically and the country you come from and your family's from? Yes. 
Yes. Uh, kia ora. So I'm born and bred in Māori, woman, and in Hastings, Hawke's Bay, New Zealand. I have seven or eight generations of wahine Māori who are born here in New Zealand, and so I am well entrenched as a Māori person and my whakapapa. My whakapapa is Ngāti Kahanunu, and we are is established as a indigenous group of mama who live here. Um, I can track my whakapapa back seven generations to our land and I understand how our people have been colonised and the attitudes that have created laws and have shaped institutional practices which have disadvantaged my people and have had a severe impact on women as the indigenous people of this land. I am my ma- mother as a Māori woman brought with her some certain inherent responsibilities as tangata whenua and she was the first of her kind to marry a white Pākehā person And so I also understand the challenges and the dynamics that has resulted from being a half-caste person Mm -hmm. and that my brothers and sisters uh, have also borne the burden of being multicultural, um, having an Indigenous mother and a white Pākehā father. And that brings with it many challenges that half-caste women have. I chose to marry another Indigenous person, a Māori man, and so my children are very entrenched in their Māori, their tikanga and their Indigenous responsibility toward their children and their land. And my brothers, unfortunately, went through the state care child system as children in state care, who then became children's in the juvenile justice correction system, who then went on to become embedded in the criminal justice system as prisoners. And so from a personal perspective, I am aware and understand how we as Indigenous people become targeted, how we become part of the system and how we become part of the burdening prison system from childcare through to prison. I did my nursing and midwifery training early in 1970 from school, went straight and did nursing and then trained at the Hastings Hospital. And so it was the first time in my life that I was able to have my own bedroom and sleep in the nurse's home and um, from there saw a different part of life and following I married early and had started my children in 1976 and became a freezing worker so I left the health industry because at that time the institution or the hospital environment was not welcoming of Indigenous people and felt that my role as a nurse within the hospital system, I didn't feel that it was part of who I was. We In, in New Zealand in the 1980s, we had a huge economic changes. The freezing works all closed down. A lot of our 
horticultural and agricultural industries were flooded and we lost, the country lost a lot of its primary industries to overseas. New Zealand joined the EEC and we became traders with China and a lot of our industry around horticulture and agriculture sharing became lost and so I went back and did my nursing training in the 1980s. Mm. Since then I've been a midwife for the last 32 years and worked on the marae only. I've never been in, worked in the hospital system and I created a Māori health provider organisation and we use tikanga and kaupapa Māori theory to develop programmes around supporting hapu mama, supporting pregnant Indigenous women and also I became interested in the corrections and the juvenile justice system and we built two early childcare centres with kaupapa Māori Indigenous theory embedded in the programmes and then I went and wrote a reintegration programme for prisoners because we found that when the men came out of prison often there was tension between re-establishing a connection with their family and whānau in the community and specifically for men who have been out of the family for 5, 10, 15 or more years mm. and sometimes those men have made changes to their lives and our families are still embedded in some of the behaviours that have been challenging for them as couples. So I currently work with a team of reintegration providers who work, who re-establish links with men who've been in prison lifers, who've um, been embedded in the criminal justice system and I also work with hapu mama or pregnant indigenous women. I mean, you've done, you, you have done a lot already in your time. <laughs> you have a lot of experience. As you've mentioned, you start as a nurse, midwifery. You're also an, an author, a chef, nanny wife, mother, friend, employer. And you're doing a lot in the Maori health, maternal and, and children's space. Where did that desire, where did that drive come from for you? Is it something that you've just, you, you knew you were born to do was to get out and help, help make a I difference in this space? I believe it comes from personal experience, the lived experience mm. of being part of a family of nine children wow. who, are, who have been culturally challenged. It's a difficult space when you don't know who you are and where you are. And I know that our grandparents, and I owe a lot to our grandparents, who were Māori, who were Indigenous Māori, who were very staunch and proud of being Māori and who took us back to the marae. And so we had our roots at the marae and we had some cultural connectedness. When my parents in the 1960s moved from the marae into town, which was the urban drift, we found ourselves as children unsupervised at home, both parents working, our father went into the freezing works and our mother went into the factories. They worked long hours, 12-hour shifts, and we as children were unsupervised and talented 
and my brothers got into trouble mm. in the streets of, you know, these new urban towns. And the what I believe I saw was that our our families were generated interests in each other. So the Māori families stayed with the Māori families and Pākehā families seemed to drift off with their own Pākehā families. And so we had gangs of children who survived on the streets, were streetwise, and we became, what would I call it, active in our society, looking after ourselves and doing the things that we wanted to do. As a result, my brother's soon became targeted because of their behaviour and were taken by the child, youth and family for not attending school, being delinquents, for stealing mm. bikes. And, and that whole system, to me, I felt an injustice because the schools did not prepare us for life. They prepared us to be a workforce. Mm. The schools did not share our history as Indigenous people. We learned about being British. We learned about the British colonies, about France and England and Captain mm. Cook. But in our history, we knew we had our own heroes. We had Coupier, our own Indigenous stories that we loved and wanted to hear about, our own music, our own spiritualness and our own spirituality, which was shut down, I'd say, in the education system. And so what I felt was a sense of loss. Mm. And unlike my brothers and cousins and many of my family members, I didn't join a gang. I didn't go out thieving. I didn't do a lot of what they did. I read books and I got more interested in society and what why why we weren't part of society and it interested me well you've done a lot of work in that area and it's easy to tell where that stemmed from with your upbringing and and how that passion's evolved over the time tell us about with relation to the maori people over over in new zealand the discrimination that they've felt and received in the system over the years and and what your role has been especially as it relates to the Maori women and, and the maternity. So we we know that in seventeen sixty nine Captain Cook came to New Zealand and founded what he saw was almost two hundred thousand native individuals living in New Zealand, Aotearoa. And the purpose of his visit has never been unclear to us. We believe it was to do a navigate the country to look for places that they could use as penal colonies and to source out the resources of this country and they found everything they were looking for. We were fortunate in that they did not establish penal colonies in Aotearoa. However, they did see the seals, the fishing, they saw the wood, the timber, and within a very short space of time set out whaling stations around the country as an industry and negotiated access to the land with the local Māori that lived there and also set up whaling stations. And as a result of which we had 71 years from when Captain Cook came and the establishment of colonial settlers that came here. And they were, in that time, 
intent on grabbing as much of the land as possible, which they did, by whatever means possible. And we understand that this behaviour was entrenched in colonialism. It had started in Canada in the 1600s. It had moved through United States of America. It had then transferred this behaviour to Australia. And New Zealand was now experiencing the same type of behaviour. We know that white women were not allowed to come to New Zealand. Isn't that interesting? In the first 71 years, they were banned from coming here. So the first white woman to set foot in New Zealand was a convict that escaped from Botany Bay. She jumped ship. She was an Irish woman. Mm. And she came over pretending to be a male. And so that was the first white woman mm. in New Zealand. We know that the in over that 71 years that many of the whalers and sealers took Maori women, indigenous women as their wives, had children with them. And so we had a mixture of descents of, of Maori indigenous women ha- who were having children to the British colonialists that came. When we look at how that happened also we know that the missionaries came and if you look at the if you read the rich list today the New Zealand rich list they are the descendants of the missionaries so the missionaries came for two purposes personal one was to gain wealth personal wealth which they did by occupying and taking land and the second purpose was to come here and to to establish Christianity in this country. And to establish Christianity was to set up schools. So the first missionary schools in the country were set up and the children were targeted, the indigenous children, because how you change a culture is you target the children Mm. so that the next generation become embedded in the new regime. And we understand that in a very short space of time, Māori were beginning to take on European ways. They were employed as timber workers. They were employed in the fishing industry. And they became very good at it. They set up their own fishing boats and chartered boats, and they began to become part of the industry. By 1833, the British government said, you cannot trade with Sydney because Māori had become quite expert at trading timber because you don't fly a flag. And so when we look at Māori history, they developed the first Māori flag in Mm. 1835. Some people think it was to establish Tenoranga Tiratanga, but it was actually to enable the Brit- our Māori yeah. people to be able to trade on the sea and they had to fly their own flag and that's how they did that. By So between 1835 and 1840, our Māori were industrious, they were becoming incredibly knowing of the industry, the whaling, the fishing and the timber industry and they were stopped in 1840 was the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi and when we look at that from a Māori perspective it was to enable the British government to establish rules and regulations around how companies are formed, how businesses enacted and 
what happened after 1840 is that there was discussions over land sales and the government became the only legal purchaser of Māori land. So many of the land that had been sold prior to 1840 became disputed mm. lands. And it signalled also a change in the way Māori were dealt to by the government because they could then be assigned to different regions, different areas. And we now become to see that instead of Māori being transient and moving across the country because we could, we became localised in your iwi bound by iwi boundaries, restricted in trade, and we lost lots of our land and our resources. We unfortunately also introduction of the Native Lands Act, the Native Education Act, and many of that that imposed education system on our children. And if children didn't go to school, parents could be judged to be unfit and children could be taken. Interesting to note that the first missionary schools were built on Māori land that had been donated by the Māori owners and still today, many of those missionary schools that were established are still sitting on 99-year Glasgow leases, which prevent the Māori landowners or the school owners of those lands to be able to generate sufficient income off those lands to be able to manage these schools. One example is Te Aute College here in Hawke's Bay, it was set up by missionaries. The land was given by Māori, iwi, uh, Māori landowners for the mm. purpose of building Te Aute College and the government leased the land to locals and who have now sat on that land for con some considerable time and still pay peppercorn rentals for it while the school struggles to be able to provide a, a school. So there's been many, many injustices and I think that's been perpetuated across many of the countries that I've spoken about. It's really interesting when you go back and explain the sequence of those those events over the time and how it's changed and really I guess taken away the freedoms and you know, and the natural instincts of yes. of the Maori people. What's it like over there at the moment and how's it progressing, do you feel? I think that COVID that the COVID epidemic has identified a number of opportunities, has also highlighted a number of disparities. The first instance is that in March in 2020, when we first had the COVID lockdown and we were forced into a lockdown, there were many families who, because of their poverty were unable to survive being locked down they didn't have sufficient food and when the government said oh well all the school kids could just do their schoolwork on wi-fi it identified a huge number of maori families that didn't have computers in their homes didn't have wi-fi access and didn't mm. have the ability for children to continue to be educated in their schools because the gap between the haves and the have-nots was became apparent because mm. of the forced lockdowns. I think also what happened is that 
Māori families live from week to week, from one dole payment to the next dole payment, not by choice, but because of the situation, the circumstances that have been forced upon them. And so many Māori and Pacifica families didn't have a supply of food in their cupboards to feed the multitude and relied on their weekly pay. And what we saw were the lineups at the local food banks growing and growing and growing daily and continue to grow today. We also understood that families that were in the city and were less able to get resources, whereas those Māori families that remained on the outskirts of towns that were still growing some of their own food and that had a little bit of land around them were surviving better than the the ones that were living in urban areas and the built-up areas. And I think that what we are still seeing today is the fringes of poverty has impacted more because of COVID and families are becoming more, what would I say, they're beginning to question some of the the rules and regulations Mm. because they don't seem to be purposeful. For instance, people were questioning, why is it that overseas people can come to this country? We've got lockdowns, MIQ, and they are having to go into MIQ lockdown in, in New Zealanders. For the first six months, we're incurring the cost of the MIQs. And then also, why is it that people are getting tested for COVID and the um, ones coming in from overseas who are testing negative have to go into MIQ, but the ones in the community who test positive are allowed to self-isolate at home. And how do you how do you manage those who are supposed to be self-isolating when you find that someone's driven from Auckland 600 kilometres all the way to Hastings and they're so supposed to be self-isolating because they're positive. And so, there, you know, there have been some questions raised about that. I know that we're all learning and COVID's going to be around a long time. It's not going away anytime soon. But I do believe that there has become an apparent widening gap between people who can sit comfortably at home with COVID and families like Māori and Indigenous families who've got three and four families living in one three-bedroom house having to struggle to survive when they're having to lock down because of COVID. And, you know, the other potential problem we have is that when you use universality or universal rules and regulations to apply to everybody, then it's an an unfair system. For instance, Māori families have four or five families living in one home, go to a supermarket, and when someone is shopping for the whole family, they're only allowed to buy two packets of toilet paper. They're only allowed to buy four bread. They're only allowed to buy four milk. And you try and explain to the shop or the, you know, the supermarket lady, oh, no, but we've got 25 in our family to feed. 
And she says, no, but I'm sorry, it's restricted. You can only have two packets of toilet paper. Mm. And even today, you work, walk through the supermarket and there's labels on everything, only two per customer, four per... And that's because yeah. we are judged to be a family unit of yeah. mum and dad and four, three kids. And yeah. it's all that. It's right. It's It's those subtle things, but they're just, you know, things that just don't make... Sense, and I get there has to be some sort of a way to make sure that people aren't hoarding massive amounts, yes. but but there does need to be some sort of logic and, and application of common sense, don't you? Yes, I agree. And some, and what I think it feels as though is that the rules and regulations that are determined for us are made by privileged white people who don't understand the lived experience of poverty and don't have a real sense of what our families and how our families are suffering mm. behind closed doors. And people say, oh, family violence has gone up. And I say, well, it's no wonder. I'm not surprised by that. If you're forced to live in a situation of poverty mm. and you lack the very essentials to survive, then your stress levels are going to go up. And that's normal, and I'd say that would be normal for any any family, whether you're Indigenous yeah. or not. How have you seen the treatment as it relates to to Maori women and their kids? Have you seen is there discrimination over there at the moment in the system? Is there? I, I absolutely believe that discri- the Maori women are more discriminated against than any other, and that's the reason for that is, and that's typically part of colonisation, is that you undermine the mothers and to undermine the mothers, you target them. And so from 1840, Māori women were undermined. The reason for that was so they could take their children and also so that you could impact or you can introduce an education system so that the next group of children became educated in certain ways. Now, Māori women have been excluded from that education system and many of our Māori women today, for instance, if you look at the general ability for women, Māori women to generate income, they are the lowest paid in society, but they generally have the greatest responsibility to fund and feed their children, to fund for education, for instance, to fund their food, their accommodation for their children. I recently looked at the housing crisis in New Zealand. We've got a huge housing shortage in New Zealand. The government deliberately stopped investing in state homes and state housing, in fact, deliberately tore them down and didn't replace them for almost a decade. And so today we have this huge housing shortage and we have families in social housing. And many of those, at least 45% of the families in social housing are mothers with their children. And um, so the impact of social housing and transiency on the children who can't attend school and the fact that in this country in New Zealand today, you have to have a fixed abode 
in order to register with a general practice or a GP. So if you don't have a fixed abode, you and your children are unregistered and you cannot get health care mm. with, a, with a doctor, with a GP. So in order to have your children seen, if you'll need your children to be seen by a general practice or something, you have to take them to the hospital, to the A&E department and sit there. And some of our family, our mothers with their children, sit there for up to four to six hours to be seen. And that's a huge problem also for contraceptives. So we know that Maori women are being targeted for medical sterilisation. They are going into hospitals and having babies and they are tempted with larks, which are long-term action contraception, which are, in, which are what are they? They are <laughs> larks. They are inserted into the arms of women, um, Jadels, or they are inserted into the women so that they become medically sterilised. Mm. Now, for some Māori women, and we see them in our clinics, who have tried to, the young girls have tried to dig them out, and they don't understand about the contraceptive and how they work. But if you're not enrolled with a GP, you cannot get free contraceptive in this country. Mm. And so I, I continually get people saying to me, you know, Jean, why do those young Maori girls have so many babies? You know, why do they keep having children when they can't afford them? And I say, well, the health system doesn't allow them to have managed contraception yeah. and therefore they're having babies when they could choose not to. It's all that. It's mm. the social issues. And we're still seeing, Jean, we're still seeing babies. I know there's a case this year that you're involved in as well yeah. with with. You know, indigenous women, married yeah. women, uh, and their kids being taken away from them still. Yeah, so if we have to understand the system, in 1982, the country, the government established the Crown Entities in 1982, which means that hospital boards, police, traffic departments, GPs, doctors, companies, organisations, Child, Youth and Family, Housing New Zealand, all became part of Crown Entities under the Crown Entities Act. That established a ways and a means for those government agencies to talk to each other and to enable them to transfer information about their clients between their organisations without often the clients even knowing it was happening. And so then what happened is under the Vulnerable Children's Act, which was established, people, doctors, nurses, school teachers, early childcare people, people who worked in hospitals, if they felt that a child looked or was not being cared for in a manner which they felt was safe, they could make an unidentified and an anonymous complaint to the Department of Child, Youth and Families. And the department is then encouraged to seek a, an investigation. So what we find in our country today is that the nurses and the hospital personnel will often see or witness something in the hospital and not 
like what they see and make a, um, a referral for a child to child family. We also have what is now considered the greatest number of referrals through family violence. So when so in every hospital, we now have family violence coordinators, which work with the police department in each city, and the family violence coordinators are called to domestic violence cases. And where children have been present, there is an automatic notification to Child, Youth and Family, or Oranga Tamariki, where a child has been present. So what mm. can then escalate the situation that if the mother is unemployed, if the mother is living in social housing, if she's got no income, if she's unsupported, if there have been multiple family violence cases, then the child is automatically taken. And what I see is there's been a deliberate culmination of policies in the late 1980s, the Social Welfare Act stripped benefits for single mothers and solo mums by 15%. And so you saw a government activity that impacted negatively on the lives of single mums and their children and continues to impact negatively on them today. I often hear, after 32 years of being a midwife, have couples come in to see me who are living together, who are married or living in de facto, whose lives are impacted by poverty, who can't afford to take their children to dental clinics or their children to specialist skin specialists, or they can't get on the uh, on the government housing mm. list because they're married. But the minute they separate, she can get a seven or eight hundred dollar a week benefit, and he, if he takes one or two of the kids, he can get a benefit also. And suddenly, they are rewarded financially for separating, and now they've got a greater chance of getting a housing or corp house, or they can get social housing. And so, there is no incentive yeah. for couples to stay together. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And if you look at those, and people disagree with me, they go, but Jean, there are jobs and people just have to get a bit of education. They go to work and da-di-da-di-da. But what we are seeing today is the third, fourth and fifth generation of children who have been trapped in poverty, mm. whose grandparents and parents have been trapped in this vicious cycle whose parents have not had the education, whose grandparents have not had an education. I work at the Hawke's Bay Prison and we have a juvenile unit at the prison and there have been instances where their grandchildren are in the juvenile unit and their father and grandfather are over in the senior prison. So we are seeing an institutional, intergenerational trap. And it is all associated with the government policies and practices that the government impacts negatively on our families, our Indigenous families. Now, I will sit with anybody who disagrees with me and sit there with the statistics and show them mm. that from the 1950s through the 1960s, there are decades and decades of statistics 
that show how our people were forced off their land, who were generating their own food, feeding themselves and living in harmony with each other, forced to urbanise into the cities, forced into forced labour markets who lost everything and to continue to today, 50 years later, and we're seeing the tragic loss mm. of whakapapa, the loss of culture, the loss of dignity, the loss of mana, and the loss and impact to our families that is caused through policies and practices that governments impact negatively on our Indigenous people. Uh, do you have a sense of hope that things turning the corner and we're making progress? I know that the government has the Pua Pua report that looks at changes. I feel that that's greatly influenced on who is elected to parliament. So we only have a three-year political parliamentary uh, system. And so what I see and what it feels as though it depends on who's in. So if the Nats get in, this is going to happen. National, I'm talking about. If Labor gets in, this is might what happen. If the Greens get in, this might be what happen. And it feels to me like those political parties have their own agendas mm -hmm. and they want to maintain power and political presence. And they can't do that if they are sympathetic to the Indigenous voter. Because we are a minority voter, mm. we are often, we don't vote. And so when you look at the number of Indigenous, of those of us who do vote, we are a minority. And so often the political will is not about what justice and social policy could do. It's more about the majority. That's where I feel there needs to be an independent. Yeah. We need to have an independent Indigenous government who looks after the 23% of us as Indigenous people. We need to have our own policies and laws and people say, but that's apartheid. And I go, well, that's the only thing that I believe would give Indigenous Māori people equitable outcomes for us mm. and until we get apartheid we will never have that because universality or universal rules do not take into account the embedded injustices that have occurred for our people over the five generations that is really interesting to understand the background of that and it makes sense with what you're saying Yes. If, for just for a couple of minutes, if you just want to tell us a little bit about the Choices Health and the community service and what, what oh. you're up to with that, because I think that's interesting as well. Well, I came, I did my nursing and my background is in psych nursing. So I worked in the Hastings Psychiatric Unit. And when I went to do my Bachelor of Registered Nursing, I kept my psych unit job and worked night shift. And it was a great opportunity to actually see a lot of the issues that affect our families. After completing my midwifery training, 
I wasn't successful in getting a job at the Hastings Hospital. And that might have had something to do with the fact that I'm a shit stirrer and I call myself that. <laughs> and I'm not willing to toe the line. And if I see an injustice, I'll speak out. And I don't yeah. care if it costs me my job. And so I came out of midwifery school and the challenge was for me was to work to work, and so I was the founder of our organisation, wrote a programme to the Ministry of Health, and in 1994-95, I started Choices, which was targeting hapu pregnant Māori women, and to be able to provide a midwifery service for them. So for the last 30-odd years, that's what we've been doing. We've grown our service. We have two early childcare centres. We have 100 tamariki come through our centre. Most of them are babies from our midwives. We have five Māori Indigenous midwives that work with us, registered nurses who work in the schools. We look after the decile one schools high Māori Pacific Island population in our schools and we have a programs that we work in the Hawke's Bay prison working with our men who have been reintegrated back into the communities. We have a marae on the beach at Waimarama. We do the children's health camps, the school camps and we are now, you know, we're just pottering mm. along basically just doing things differently by Māori for Māori. Yeah. And making noises. I was the midwife that went up to the Hastings Hospital in 1919 and refused to allow them to take the baby off the mother. And the reason we, we took a stand on that is that if you look at the Treaty of Waitangi, Articles 2 states that Māori have a right to their kainga and their taonga, so their kainga are their homes, their taonga are their children, and if the government wants to intervene in that or to do anything to impact on that, they have to negotiate that with Māori. So it made sense to me that how can the mm. government send in social workers within an hour of a baby's birth and take a baby off its mother at the birth without telling her they're coming to do it. And what really pissed me off was that between 2015, 2015 and 2019, and we're not really sure about the numbers here, mm. we believe there were some 945-odd newborn babies taken at off their indigenous, indigenous mother at Māori mother at their birth. But when we approached Oranga Tamariki and asked for the figures, they couldn't tell us because they don't keep a, a track of the numbers. And the only way we could find out how many children, newborns were actually taken was that every DHB holds a figure for how many newborns are taken at that individual DHB. So we tried to add up all the numbers of children wow. and we got to some 945 children, newborn babies. And what astounds me is we've still got mothers between 2015, 2019, don't know where their babies are, mm. don't know where their newborns are. And also under the... Adoption Act, we know under the current Adoption Act, we know that you can adopt a baby without the mother's and father's knowledge or permission. 
And so we've been, there's been a current review of the current Adoption Act in New Zealand, but I personally believe some of those newborns between 2000 and 2015 mm. and 2019 have been deliberately taken off the Indigenous mothers and have been adopted without the mother's knowledge or consent and have left the country. And I continue to ask for the figures and I continue to ask the government under the Act, where are every single baby? And I keep getting excuses. Oh, we don't have the numbers. Oh, every every DHB has a different number. Oh, Oranga Tamariki didn't have to keep the figures. And I even asked how many were adopted and which is, has been a question, forced adoption is an issue which I believe Every Indigenous country, America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand have been impacted by that insidious Adoption Act and forced adoption. Yeah, so that's, inc- that's a incredible, isn't my it? bonnet. The, you mentioned almost 200 kids, uh, yeah. Indigenous kids, have been taken almost per year between 15 and, yeah. and 19 off their mothers yeah. at birth, which is, yeah. again, yeah. something that, I mean, as a mother, it's you just find that. Horrific, wouldn't you? Like that's, in, and we know you're doing it. <laughs> it's it's the topic of my PhD. So I'm doing. I'm mm. currently in my fourth year of my PhD, and I started looking at social a child social policy or looking at child welfare policy, and then became and then started looking at the statistics of the number of children that have gone through the child welfare system since the 1950s, who then go into the juvenile justice system, who then end up in prison, and the statistics mirror the number of children taken to the number of men who are in prison and I can show you a table and I hope you can see that yeah so that figure there shows the number of children that were taken and the top figure shows the number of children of number of men in prison and they mirror each other Mm. and there's been a lot of work done by Len Cook and Mona Jackson who is who has put their whole life's work and energy into into looking at this and many New Zealanders are unaware and you know they have no idea of the impact of colonization on indigenous Maori people and they think it's historic but it's not it's ongoing it's ongoing today and it's still ongoing Mm. yeah so the Maori experience over there in the prison system you just alluded to that the figures are increasing but tell us about the impacts of the, of the criminal system over there and then trying to get them reintegrated with society and, and the, probably the injustices yeah. around that as well I think that we need to understand that Maori make up only 19 to 20 percent of the population but we are 63 or more percent of the prison population and and it's intergenerational so we've also got five three four five generations of families who have tracked the system so it's become normalized in some of these families who are then targeted and the problem we have with reintegration is that our families don't have the resources like housing is a huge issue and being able to, to reintegrate back into a safe home. We also have changes to the Bail Act. 
So the bail act that was changed forced many of our families in, and it's so complicated. The whole system is feeds off each other. So the government makes a policy like the three strikes rule that says if you're a woman and you're driving your car and you're caught with no rego, no warrant and no driver's licence, that's strike one. If you get caught again three weeks later, that's strike two. If you get caught again, strike three, you go to prison mandatory for three months. Mandatory. And what, what we found is that some of the for instance, they, on a rainy day, we go to our decile one schools and we see traffic officers walking along on a rainy day, tapping on the windows of our cars, asking our mums for their driver's licence and checking all their warrants of fitnesses. So there, it's entrapment, that's what I call it. Anyway, what we have is we have these cycles. And so when we try and reintegrate our dads back into the community, often a lot of work has to happen between getting him re-established back with his whānau. Many of our own families are victims of their offending as by their own family member. And so there's a lack of trust and the ability to trust their family member to come back into the home. And so we have to have be working with both parties and also we have to work with the children because dad might have been four when dad went to prison, mum has been the main caregiver and dad's coming home and he's now 14. And so we've got, there are lots of challenges and every research shows that prison is not, prison should be abandoned. Prisons were made in the early 1600s and they didn't work then and they don't work today and so why on earth we can keep having this penal system you know it's it doesn't work what are your thoughts on the way it should be jean like what do you think instead of that what do you what do you reckon so what we know is that judge andrew beefcroft who is the current child health commissioner who's just gone out of his role after four years is saying that New Zealand needs to separate out the juvenile justice system from the criminal justice system. They need to be separated. At the moment, New Zealand, we have a law that can charge a 10-year-old for murder and only in Texas can they charge a 10-year-old. So we have the same laws as Texas. The other problem we have is children are different from adults. They should be treated differently. But when you treat a child as a criminal offender, as an adult criminal offender, you set that child up on a journey for the rest of his life. So the first thing we have to do is look at those two systems and separate them so that then we can work with juveniles and not treat them as adult criminals. We understand that children are incapable of being held responsible for their actions because of their brain development. And so a 13 and 14 year old, which I know happens in New Zealand today, they are, if they murder or they do an offence, they are held over until they are 17 and 18 and charged as an adult and they get life. The whole system needs to have a revamp of the system. Now, the other problem we have is that we don't have systems that check to see if it's working or not. And we don't have a system where we can hold 
the government accountable. Mm. So if, for instance, they lock away children in welfare homes and they abuse them, they get away with it. They're not held responsible for the damage they do to those young children. And so we're now 50 years later dealing with the effects of that abuse on those children who are now adults having their own children. So we have these cyclic events that have been created and are continuing to be created and there is no easy answer for them. But what we have to do is we have to start to measure what policies are impacting on our families, Indigenous families, and work out ways and means to put an end to them. And that has to be done by Māori for Māori. Pākehā people cannot come and tell us what the solution is because they are the ones that created the problems. Mm. So they're never, they're never yeah. going to say, oh, we know the solution. And until you sit there and look at why it's been done a certain way for all those years, until you actually put that under the microscope and say, well, hang on, does this even make sense, the way this is being done, the length of time, what they're doing while they're in prison, does this really make sense? And if you could de- redesign this so that you could have better outcomes for society as a whole, but more so for the people yes. at the centre of this, how do we get them ready in reintegration? Like maybe there is a better way, but until you question it, yeah, it'll always be so, the same. That's right. I think one of the issues is around edu- the education system. Oh, before we say that, I have to tell you that currently in New Zealand, we have a $4.4 billion funding that goes into Oranga Tamariki and the 10 top providers are all Pākehā European providers and for instance Youth Horizons get something like $26 million a year. We know that we've got about 3,500 to 3,800 children in care or under Oranga Tamariki and I keep saying why don't we just get the $4.4 billion and give it to those 3,800 kids and send them home to their parents? Some families have got three and four children, so if they get their money and split it up amongst all of them, they'll have enough to buy a house. And over the next five years, we can continue to give them the $4.4 billion. And I bet you, I bet you, bet you, the number of children who need that care will go down as well as the offending will go down and we will have a solution that is whānau-based that has been designed by our families for our families instead of having others tell us what the solutions yeah. are. Yeah. Um, I'm told that in, in America it's a $26 billion industry. Wow. In Canada it's something like a $15 billion industry and in Australia it's something like a $20 billion industry. So child welfare, government Child welfare is a multi-billion dollar industry, but what it needs to generate that income is it needs feeders into it, which are Indigenous children. And so when you you ask the question, well, how do we change the system? Well, first of all, we have to want to change it, and the ones that are getting the most out of it won't want to change it. It's a good point, and until someone you know that's very passionate and driven gets out there and shakes the tree a little bit, which, Jean, <laughs> I, I guarantee that's uh, that's what you're born to do. You're very good at this, and and I'm happy that you're not content with the status quo. No, I got my gold card this year. I'm 64. I'm 65 this year, and someone says to me, "When are you going to retire?" 
and I go, I'm going to retire when I feel my grandchildren, Okapuna Tuarua, are mm. going to be safe. Mm. And at the moment, I don't think my great-grandchildren will be safe in this country. They won't be. There are too many hooks and barbs yep. that will force my great-grandchildren into situations not of their making that will make them unsafe. I, I think, of, just to be quick, the solution for this, we need better hapu mama antenatal education programs. We have been, as Māori midwives, fighting the government for over 30 years to give us the funding to provide community-based, marae-based antenatal education programs. Because if we could get a pregnant young Māori Indigenous woman and, and, and explain and train her to be the best mother that she could, the best wife, the best partner, the best woman that she could being a mother and a partner, then that goes a long way to helping her and to be able to deliver to her children and her home and her household. But the government has insisted on universality, so mm. they fund the DHBs, and they, which are the hospitals, and they fund certain types of antenatal education programs and every evidence shows that 90% of our Māori pregnant women don't attend these classes but they continue to fund them anyway. So two weeks ago I got a phone call from somebody, I won't tell you who, who said Jean did you know that 63% of the pregnant hapu mama Māori in New Zealand are unvaccinated. How do we get the message to them to get vaccinated? And I said, you're 30 years too late and you haven't been listening to us because if you had given us the funding to do these antenatal classes, we would have been teaching them everything they need to know. But all these years, you've been content that our hapu mama have remained ignorant mm -hmm. and unable to care for themselves and their babies. But only now today, because you need them COVID vaccinated, not for their safety, but for your own safety, you now want to get a message to them to get vaccinated. And you know that you have to ask us how we can do that. And I go... One of the problems we have is often we as Māori don't get resource to do anything until it benefits Pākehā. It makes no sense and I hope, Jean, that this gets sorted in your lifetime so that you do have time to retire <laughs> and enjoy, enjoy life. I know that. I rave on and, and you're going to be able to go through your everything and cut things and that's fine. And, you know, I don't need to listen to whatever it is that you do because, you know, I am I stand by everything I say. Yeah. I don't care if people agree with me or not. And I love the fact that we have a voice and that we can say what we need to say. And, yeah, so I, thank you no, for spending I think, time chasing me. No, I think it's great because I think the more people that we can get the message out to, uh, the more awareness we can create with this and momentum that can keep, you know, getting that voice for the Maori people's but, but like you said, yeah. this isn't just an issue in New Zealand, Aotearoa. It's actually many countries are facing the same challenge and we can learn yeah. from each other and, and hopefully um, yeah. you guys can keep making some progress over there. And yeah. good luck with it all and, and thank you for spending time with us and sharing your story with our listeners. Thank you. I appreciate it. And they can get hold of me if they want to have a debate with me. I love debates. <laughs> How do they get hold of you then? <laughs> 
Or they can email me, yep. gene at choices.maori.nz, and I'll answer everyone. <laughs> I might, might be late, but I'll still answer them. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Jean. We appreciate <laughs> thanks, it. Thanks, Sam. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.